Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Carol Gibson, a clinical psychologist with a research interest in the areas of child and family psychology, trauma and psychotherapy. She is currently an associate professor at the University of Auckland, New Zealand, where she is the director of the clinical psychology program. In today's episode, we talk to Carrie about the many ways in which technology assists youth counseling. And by youth, we mean a person aged between 16 and 21, and about the good and the not so good bits of engaging with social technology. We talk about how, through the lens of her research in New Zealand, youth use social media to engage with the topic of suicide. We talk about grief and loss expressed on social media and about the role elders and other family members play in this space. We also talk about ethics and responsibility of technology companies building products in this space. We hope you enjoy it. Um, hi there, Carrie. Welcome to The Human Show. It's nice to have you here. Hello, Angel. So I guess our first question would have to be, so um, tell us more about your definition or how you'd view technology. Well, I guess it's all about, you know, one's own position in relation to it. So I'm a clinical psychologist and my particular interest as a clinical psychologist is about working with young people who are experiencing psychological difficulties, mental health problems, distress and so on. So my area of interest is really about how we can use technology to kind of help and support some of those people with what they're experiencing. But also just have a look at how that whole sort of area, that whole kind of um, culture of, of, of digital communication is working amongst young people and how they talk about difficult subjects like mm-hmm. suicide or depression amongst themselves. So that's what I've been interested in. Um, why don't you tell us more about this project that you've done with um dealing with these um, healthcare services and um, young people through technology? and Well, I guess the way, I mean, I, I got into it first through a kind of a general area of research, which was trying to understand young people don't easily engage with professional services mm. um, to get help for mental health problems. They just feel really uncomfortable with it. They often worry about um, their parents finding out things about them that they prefer to keep private. They worry about maintaining their autonomy and so on. Um, and what we find is they just don't access health services. So as I start to like interview young people and hear about some of the ways in which our current mental health services aren't working for them, uh, the reasons why perhaps they don't want to go and talk to them. Some of them started to tell me about how they felt much more comfortable using some kind of digital communication. And then I started to do a bit of work with, um, did some research with Youthline, where I looked at their text counselling service, which is a great service. I mean, it started off, it was intended by them to be a very small little mm-hmm. service where, you know, people could just use it as an adjunct to telephone counselling when it was first developed. And it just escalated. They were amazed at the number of young people who were mm. just, you know, preferring to text in their concerns and get mm. counselling via text back. 
And yeah. was that text on the phone or more like of a social media kind no, of No, that, that particular um, service was a text counseling service. And actually really interesting, so it was a phone text counseling mm -hmm. service. Um, and I think the phone has particular significance mm -hmm. because particularly for young people, um, I guess some young people have their own computers, but computers are more kind of visible. Mm -hmm. Your parents can look over your shoulder and see what you're doing. Phones are very private. You mm -hmm. carry them in your pocket. You, they, you have them with you on the bus when you go traveling. You have them in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have it there with you all the time. And I think that sort of mobility mm -hmm. um, and, and the privacy of it mm -hmm. is really important for young people. So it was, yeah, it was incredible that young people were saying things like, you know, in my mind, okay, this is how it changes the way that we think about doing sort of psychological therapy, for example. Like in my world, when I was trained, it was kind of going to be like, well, you know, you make an appointment with somebody for a Thursday afternoon at two o'clock and you're going to go and, you know, they're going to mm -hmm. have a session with a therapist and, and, um, Whereas the way that the sense I got from the young people I was talking to about how they'd used the youth line service was that it was really very much in the moment and they're very used to being able to communicate in the moment, get the help when they needed it. So literally people were saying to me, you know, I was in the movie house uh, in a cinema uh, and I was feeling really distressed about mm. my boyfriend and so I could just text there and then to a youth line counsellor and say this is what's going on or my parents were fighting in the kitchen yeah. or I was on the bus and they were bullying me mm. what must I do so that it's that immediacy of it what does that do to the other side of the coin to the counselor that that kind of gives advice yeah does it does it change also the way they work well to be honest I haven't studied that that much but I mean I would imagine that they, they have to I mean for a start they have to understand text speak <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's not always the same as, as you know, obviously fully written English. Um, but also kind of, you know, yeah, using the language that people are comfortable with, giving very short responses. Mm -hmm. But that, I mean, those responses still, I think they, they use all the skills that a counselor would normally have, being empathic, reflecting back you know conveying understanding and you know initially I have to say I thought no seriously and, and if I spoke to you know the older generation of psychologists they'd be going you know that's not real communication it's mm. it's it's not really people are not going to feel understood if they can't see a person in front of them but actually young people were saying to me they do feel understood and it's about conveying that in a very short number of characters, small number of characters, you know, with a perhaps an emoticon or, or something. And I, there was this lovely quote once that I read, you know, when I was dealing with this challenge of psychologists kind of saying, well, you know, that's not, can't be real counseling if it's, if it's digital. And, and I, I love this quote about, you know, anyone who's ever sort of written or received a love letter will understand how, you know, deeply emotional a, a, a written communication can be. And I think, and young people say that. They say, you look at this text that you got back from the counsellor and it says, you know, you know, you've dealt with a lot, you know, you can, you know, just keep being strong, it's okay. Um, and they kind of can look at it like later in the day when they're feeling really down. And, it, you know, they, it, it's not something that, that just happens in the moment. Mm. It, it, it kind of, they can go back to it and it's comforting. They also said other things like um, that, that um, just actually the writing down of what they felt was almost cathartic for them. 
Mm-hmm. So we often, you know, um, so being able to write it out and send it as a text actually kind of mm-hmm. soothed them. Yeah. yeah. So was that the only type of technology that you've researched or observed? No, no. So so that's kind of where it started. Okay. And then I got interested in, well, you know, how's this whole technology thing working in, in, in other ways? And one of and, the… And just yeah. for our speakers, your background is in… I'm a clinical psychologist, yeah. So I'm I'm an associate professor at the University of Auckland and mm-hmm. I'm the director of the clinical psychology program there. So that's okay. what I do. And I've worked for about 30 years with young people. Yeah. yeah, Not with technology. I'm new to technology. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of still getting my head around that one. Um, and, you know, really what I, I mean I would say is that uh, I am a very kind of a naive researcher in this respect and genuinely going out to ask young people, you know, how it's working for them and trying to understand that. Oh, so you were asking about different kinds Mm -hmm. of areas that I've got into. So as I said, it started off, well, what are young people feeling about services anyway? And then I kind of wandered into this other project with Youthline and and, and the value of text counselling. And then the next project I began work on was looking at... um, at, at suicide, and I was particularly interested in in the way social media has transformed the way that young people are talking about suicide with each other. And, of course, in as you'll know, there's been a lot of controversy. When yeah. you talk about social media, what type of platforms um, do you mean? Well, actually, we didn't specify. We were just mm. talking right across the range about – and also the, the mix, the com- combination of, of – Different kinds of social media, everything from, uh, you know, well, most of them don't use Facebook these days, but some of them do, Snapchat or, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, Tumblr, and then ordinary text counseling, uh, text um, conversations mm-hmm. on the phone. Um, so the full range and, and, and also how um, that fits alongside their face-to-face conversations Mm -hmm. as well. So I was just saying, you know, in this kind of, my research was really like in this new environment where everyone can talk in all these different ways about this very sensitive issue that there's quite a lot of taboo about looking at. And I I don't know, in New Mm -hmm. Zealand, I'm sure you're familiar, there's been a lot of issues about don't talk too much about suicide in the public realm. And, you know, that's it it kind of has contagion effects and a a lot of worry about that. And because of that, they've done things like censor the media um, uh, and and, um, movies and, and newspapers and television. But, of course, I was struck by the irony that, you know, that kind of censorship has almost no impact on young people at all mm. who are communicating in these other kinds of forums in a different way. And it, it actually, my interest in that was sparked by somebody in, in the initial Youthline study who had said, uh, was talking about somebody she knew who had um, committed suicide. And she was sort of talking about how everyone was talking about it on Facebook at like three o'clock in the morning. So by the time everyone went to school at, you know, nine o'clock, everyone knew about Mm. what was going on. And I thought, well, this is crazy. You know, why are we acting like young people don't know about this stuff when they clearly know a great deal more than, than adults? So... So, yes, I ran some focus group discussions with young people. Just, you know, it wasn't only about social media, but it was about, you know, how they're using all these forms of digital communication to talk mm-hmm. about suicide. And they use it in a whole variety of ways to talk about um, 
when somebody has has um, committed suicide in their social circles, obviously to find out information about what's going on, often to kind of soothe and comfort each other because they're feeling really distressed and that's a way that they can access the group. Um, yeah, so the, the, these, these kind of very very busy conversations happening and they're happening for adults, professionals who may not be as involved in social media, they're sort of happening at another level and I mean one of the ironies is that I picked up and, and one of my participants in that study said you know that, that us kids have been talking about it all the time uh, it's only the adults that haven't been talking about it so, you know, that's one of the ironies. You get this level of communication happening between young people that doesn't involve adults. And I think adults have been partly to blame for that because they have, you know, that they've kind of treated the, the um, digital communication and the internet as a kind of an enemy. And, you know, they're, they're kind of like, be careful of it. There's dangers out there as opposed to trying to understand, well, how's that working? What's happening there? Mm can we as adults be a part of those kinds of conversations in any way? Yeah. yeah. Is there a specific age group that you studied? Or? Yeah, so the, the main age group I've studied is um, young people between the ages of 16 and, and around 21 or so. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it would be interesting to study younger age groups. We run into ethical problems because we need parental permission to be able to do that. And one of the things we've been interested in doing is allowing young people a space to talk about things on their own terms and, you know, respecting their concerns about having too much parental involvement and so on. So so we've limited it to that age at the moment. And then we've got another study that's that's just sort of kicking off at the moment, which we're quite excited about. Um, and that, I guess, you know, all of these kind of one flows into the other one. But, you know, one of the things I became increasingly aware of is how much young people are relying on the support of their peers and particularly using technology to support one another. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I guess, as I said at the beginning, we know that young people aren't accessing professional services when they need to. Mm -hmm. And who do they go to? They go to other young people. As if they far prefer talking to their peers than to, yeah. to a counsellor or parent. Is yeah. this a network that they've already have that they're access that they're just accessing through technology, or yeah. also technology you've seen giving them access to new communities? Yeah, yeah. Where they come in and yeah, uh, forums and so on mm -hmm. allow people to access communities that are geographically diverse, yeah. that yes. are mm -hmm. you know, especially for isolated young people who don't have the ability to connect with others that they you know mm -hmm. feel something point of identification and you know particularly you can imagine a young person who's you know gay hasn't come out to their local community lives in a small rural community suddenly you've got access to uh, a sort of a gay network where you can talk about what that's like and other people can tell you how they did it and how they got through it and you know so that's tremendously important for for, mm. for young people um, I just wanted to ask, because one of the things we do talk about a lot on here is like ethics and that. And when you're yeah. talking about like the internet and young people engaging it, I always think of like that popular conversation that they're going to like be exposed to all these bad yeah. things. Or probably the biggest one is that they're going to bully each other yeah. instead yeah. of that positive yeah. 
environment it turns yeah. into this toxic one yeah yeah well you know it is a tricky issue and I mean they're obviously big concerns and psychologists I have to say have been very aware of the dangers of the net you know kind of bullying and uh, grooming inappropriate relationships and losing contact with real relationships in the real world mm. because you're now communicating with this other sort of virtual network. So, I mean, there's lots of worries, and I think those worries have actually got quite a lot of attention. And what hasn't got enough attention is some of the good stuff that's mm-hmm. happening there psychologically, really. Um, yeah, so the ethics of it, yeah, there are dangers on the net, um, and we need to be aware of them. But saying that the net is dangerous is a bit like saying relationships are dangerous. Yes, sometimes they are, and sometimes they're fabulous. Sometimes they're warm and supportive, and yeah. sometimes they hurt you. So the more we can educate people about the possibilities for mm. bad and good things happening, I think the better yeah. it'll be. Yeah. I was wondering, also in the context of this, you, um, I want to understand more on your opinion on this sociality between people mediated through technology in this space yeah. of, of mental yeah. um, distress. Yeah. You were mentioning earlier something that I find really interesting, which is the power of self-reflection that comes with just jotting yeah. things yeah. down, yes. which I think in one way kind of helps you to express yourself yeah. in this kind of yeah. moments when face-to-face communication wouldn't allow you that yeah. moment of reflection and jotting down. I wonder if there's other ways that you've seen in which technology um, via social media mediates these social conversations between people um, in this particular space mm. uh, mm. that is different from real life mm. with its positives and negatives, you know? <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing that I think <laughs> of is that in the coming from that text counseling research, mm. the young people... You know, people might say, okay, well, this is an anonymous person at the end. The counsellor is anonymous. They're just communicating through these few text characters. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know who they are. And in fact, the way that Youthline works, your counsellor can swap from one shift to another. So it may not even be the same person that you're talking to. Of course, they would tell you that. But, But what I found in my research is that the young people imagined the very person that they wanted on the other end of the of the um, communication. So one one young woman told me about how she was having this fight with her boyfriend, and her mum was saying, you know, her boyfriend was saying to her, "Spend more time with me," and her mum was saying, "No, you need to stay at home and do homework." Mm. And she was feeling kind of caught between these two people. So she told me when she first spoke to the first counsellor, she said there were two people. She she they often say talk, but they're meaning text. Yeah. Um, the first person she texted with, she said, well, you know, I felt that that person was kind of like my boyfriend, but except he was much more understanding. <laughs> so she'd already turned it Projected. into a man, mm. and she'd yeah. imagined that he was going yeah. to be, you know, on a similar wavelength and understand her boyfriend's perspective. And the counsellor she spoke to the next day, in her mind, was like an older yeah. woman who... Yeah could see her mum's point of view. And that has good things and bad things, right? Because this way of you filling in the blanks can also be a reason why, you know, in a virtual conversation you can end up bullying somebody because you're projecting or you're imagining the context in a completely different way than the way it might be in reality. Whereas in a real, not real, but in in a, how do you call that? In a face-to-face conversation, there's so many other elements of that person that kind of influence the way you react, the way you talk. It's not just, 
your imagination, yes, you yes. know? Yes, so, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like good things and bad things. Yeah. You can you can imagine the lovely relationship you want, and, then, and we see that all the time, don't yeah. we, on, like, online dating. You're imagining this lovely person on the other end, and then you meet them, and they nothing like you thought they would be. You know, this reminds me, when I was doing my research in Amsterdam, um, I, came, I had a conversation with this lovely lady that she was uh, in her 60s talking about her mother that has mm. nine, it was in 90s, and she was sitting, she was in a, in a rest home mm. suffering from dementia. And she was telling me that she's always had this difficult relationship with her mother. Um, she couldn't express herself, couldn't mm. communicate. And, and now going through the trauma of, of expecting her mother to die, but not being able to share everything that that grief mm. brought on to her was mm. very difficult. So she told me, you know what I did? I wrote her a letter. And when I was writing her that letter, I imagined in my mm. head a warm reaction, mm. you know, her face softening, mm. Mm. her mind accepting my words. And this is something that I could never do face to face because I'm, I'm in front of her and, and then her face just mm. does something yeah. to blocks me. Whatever blocks whatever she would really like yeah. to be saying. And yeah. for her that the way of writing it and yeah. imagining was yeah. a way for her to overcome her own yes. barriers. Yes. I was really interesting. And of course, young people, the parallel of that mm. is young people talking about how the internet, their biggest concern with counseling or with help is about being judged, mm. being seen as silly or stupid or, you know, mad or whatever it is. And they feel like on the, in digital communication, they don't have that awful yeah. feeling of somebody looking at them and judging them. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of gives them a sort of a freedom to say yeah. things they wouldn't otherwise say. The illusion of, of anonymity. And yes. It is possibly an illusion in some, you know, to some extent, but this idea that you're anonymous and what we call it the disinhibition effect you can just mm. say whatever you like and people talk very openly then about very things they would normally not say to others and that has that's wonderful because they can be more open yeah also problematic because they may say things that they actually didn't want to say yeah what do you say to these new video features that appear to be more and more present um, yeah. in digital communication yeah. nowadays. I probably don't know enough about like where that's coming from. Have you got any thoughts? And no, like for example, yeah, Facebook yeah. entering into the live segment, yeah. and you know, kind of like this mediated communication that yes. starts as being based on words now yes. is trying to be as close as possible to, to life, to life, yeah. right? In everything that it means from. Yeah. Offering video as an option, yeah. um, and also offering video that is curated, which helps you via yeah. those filtering project ah, an image ah. that you want to project. Yes, yes. Um, so it's a kind of a maybe a hybrid between real life, but also imagined life. Is yeah, like yeah. It's kind like of, my life is I would like to create. <laughs> yes, but not only through words yes. that are text, yes, but yes. using visuals and audio yeah, and everything. Yeah. Well, that is an amazing development, isn't it? And I mean, it is if you would want to say truer in some sense, I mean, we're always curating the way we come across to other people in some sense, aren't we? Yes. But, you know, perhaps we have more opportunity to do it in online contexts. But kind of to show more of yourself. Mm. Um, and again, that's a wonderful thing. You know, I mean, partly what we do on the internet, or I think what's really important for young people on the internet is to build their identity, their sense of who they are. And we do that by bouncing off others, by showing them parts of ourselves, by saying, I'm yeah. like this, or I'm like this, or do I fit and am I okay? And so I guess the more they can show 
the more it feels yeah. real in a way. But of course, it's risky as well because you put yourself out there and what feels like just embarrassing yourself in your bedroom um, might be like embarrassing yourself in front of your, you know, 3,000 friends or whatever. And that can come back to haunt you in ways you, you didn't quite anticipate. Yes. Hmm. You were talking earlier about the stigma that exists in um, in New Zealand hmm. around mental health, hmm. um, suicide. I was wondering if you can speak a bit more to how, through these technologies, that stigma can hmm. be maybe hmm. removed yeah. or maybe mediated with in yes. a in an easier way. Yes, yes. Well, I think you know, a kind of it's about it's about I guess empowering. Young people, sorry, that's my area of work, but I mean, you could also say it about any group of people uh, who are having, you know, experiencing mental distress. It's been very sort of, you know, managed by health professionals who have defined what constitutes abnormality or, you know, kind of diagnosis and tells you what the right things are to do. So in a way, the power now goes a little bit more back to people who are having those experiences themselves. They get to define how it looks or should look. I mean, one of the pieces of research I did quite a long time ago, one of my students did rather, was looking at the sort of websites for Asperger's. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that that's sort of actually one of the areas of, of, of mental health where people who experience difficulties in that area have sort of claimed it as their own. They call themselves Aspies and they kind of talk about their interesting characteristics and kind of position themselves as not so much being people with mental health problems as being an interesting and unusual and seeing things in a different way and in a more positive way. So there you see people actually taking charge of how this whole thing is defined, defining the conversation. And for young people, really, it's mm. about – we. they use sometimes ideas like depression and so on to describe their feelings, and sometimes it's it can be helpful for yeah. them. But a lot of the time they're just talking about, you know, kind of everyday feelings of distress yeah. and, you know, not necessarily going for diagnoses and other ways of sort of pathologizing mm. their experience. And what seems to be most helpful from our little initial review of it is really when somebody else, they don't tell you what to do, but they say, I've been there myself. I felt mm. the same. I remember what it was like. And just that kind of validation yeah. actually matters more than giving advice or, or yeah. being referred somewhere. And do you see that that through them taking control of their yeah. own narrative, yeah. um, they're influencing the world around them, like the programs that are being developed to support yeah. them, yeah. the government or policies around yeah. this topic, or even the commercial activities? Yeah. Have you seen that? I mean, I think that I think people. I'm I'm, I'm just talking, say, in the health services, yeah. for example, are kind of more aware than they have been before and you can see that in Mm. in sort of government documents ministry of health documents and so on about the potential power of reaching young people through Mm. the internet through technology um i think what what we might need i'm not sure we understand enough about what that means and some Mm. of our attempts there have been some very good attempts for example to develop you know kind of computer games that help people deal with depression, for example, Mm. or, you know, lots of apps coming up to help you with anxiety through mindfulness. And Mm. one of the things that, and Susanna and I have been interested in this, and that's our most recent project that we're just sort of incubating at the moment, is, is really the way that people 
that, that we don't know that young people are kind of using these things in the way it was intended because it has a life of its own. There's a group out there and they're doing other stuff with it. And, you know, so with best intentions in the world, professionals are saying, well, this would be good for young people. I don't know where young people are going with it, <laughs> what they're doing, whether it's helpful for them, whether it might be problematic in some ways we don't understand. But mainly I think they're subverting and appropriating it and, and using it in, in ways yeah. that we need to know more about. And, and that's one of the challenges, right? We had one of our speakers kind of speak a few weeks ago about the mental health kind of sector and how doctors look at people as patients and yes. with using in within that word patients there's an implication of you will be treated yeah. by somebody and you will sit there accepting the treatment and it's going to get all better mm. and mm. and it, within that word it doesn't give space for a lot of agency right it doesn't yeah, get absolutely. space for like i'm going to take this but i'm yeah. going to do it my way mm. And it's a, it's a tough tension with technology because yeah. it kind of makes that, it amplifies that, yes, right? Yes. In a lot of fields, but especially I think with medical technology, um, there's a very strong kind of friction there yes. between the way things were done before technology yes. and now with technology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, the, the difficult, so it's about empowerment hey, mm. or agency, as, yeah. as you put it, and, and the opportunity to make your own choices and so on. And, you know, that's, you know, that, that's, that's, that's great, and it's particularly important for young people, yeah. you know, who want to exercise their own agency, who want to feel in, in charge of, of the sensitive yeah. area. I was wondering earlier, um, Angel was talking to you about the ethics of, you know, navigating this technological world, um, and I wanted to ask you about the ethics of, of, of as it applies to the parents of these young people, mm. and, you know, and, and the responsibility and everything that comes to how they see their role within mm. this process. Mm. Um, have you been looking into that as well? I haven't been looking into it, but obviously it comes up, you know, as a as a side issue, you know, mm -hmm. because a lot of the young people, the message I'm getting is actually we don't want our parents involved. We want it mm -hmm. to be our place mm -hmm. and our space, and I, I sort of understand and respect that. But at the same time, we know that from a, a psychological perspective, actually parents and families play such an important role in supporting young people and we don't want this whole schism to develop between this world in which young people are communicating only with themselves mm -hmm. and sometimes getting stuck with issues that are far too big for them to manage some of them say you know got this message from my friend last night she said she was suicidal I don't know what to do you know I don't know what to mm -hmm. do with that or where to go so we don't want this big division and parents are now excluded you know we can romanticize youth culture and the ability for people to empower themselves but actually young people do need old people older mm -hmm. people you know in in some ways so to kind of, I, I guess I would be interested in how we can make spaces for old people, not to colonize these digital spaces that young people occupy, but to kind of at least understand it, to make links to it. Um, at the moment, what I feel and what I found in my suicide research was a almost like a chasm had developed between young people's communication on suicide mm. on digital media and mm. old pe older people's yeah. communication, which... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that's a big one. And another one that I was thinking when I when you were talking about this is um the echo chamber of social media in itself. Yes. Yes. Right? Um and and I think that that kind of almost reinforces the fact that you are this unitary tribe dealing with this 100% mm. that you can do it because mm. it it kind of feeds you yeah. the information mm. that that you respond to best, yes. right? 
Yes, um, yes. Have you been looking into the echo, I, echo and chamber effect? I haven't, effect? but I mean, that's a very interesting idea and you make me think I should look into that. <laughs> yes, because I can imagine that you start to feel like this could provide everything that I need, mm. you know, or we need as a group and so on. And, and that's potentially dangerous too. And particularly with mental health problems, you know, you actually do need to involve professionals when you know, I mean, I'm, I'm all for clients' own views being respected and, and, and worked with. But at some points, you actually do need professional help. So you don't want to kind of create a, a kind of a closed system mm. that's not going to allow any help or support to come in. Yeah. Yeah. You were also talking earlier about this whole wellness yeah. tech space yeah. that exists yeah. now, you know, with mindfulness and anxiety mm -hmm. and that kind of like some of them try to tap into this world of, of, of mental health through technology, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. not necessarily to such extreme cases, but even at, you know, mm -hmm. like the daily anxiety mm -hmm. that we feel as a result of mm -hmm. our living our lives. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and they try to do that in a way that maybe it's not always informed by by deep um, specialist, mm -hmm. specialized knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, have you had any experience in this space? Uh, I, I can't say that I've had particularly direct experience, but I mean, it's an area that I'm interested in exploring more in our, you know, the work that we're thinking of doing with Susanna is, is kind of looking at how people are using these these sort of mental health apps to, yeah. to manage their emotional states. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, sorry, I've forgotten what your question was, I've got, so my question would be like, what would you, would you see the role of people like yourself and Susanna in, in kind of working with these companies that develop these things in kind of providing a service that kind of maybe brings the two worlds together, mm. you know, like the world of technology and, and the world of deep human expertise mm. in mm. this topic, which is so, mm. um, yeah, sensitive, specialized. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite difficult about where the responsibility rests on the company who probably are developing something with all the best intentions mm. in the world and on the surface of things looks like a very helpful thing. So yeah. if you have something, say, to monitor your mood daily, mm. um, that can be, you know, I mean, why would anyone think there's something wrong with that? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ostensibly helpful mm. and, you know, you can see how you're feeling and whether you improved from yesterday or, or not. But of course, it can also, for somebody with a lot of anxiety, make them feel like there's something terrible wrong with them. And why hasn't their mood improved? And, you know, there's a point at which your self-scrutiny becomes really problematic and mm. increases your anxiety. So the makers of that company aren't necessarily to blame for the way that young people yeah. might use that. But I think maybe what we need to do is educate everybody, young people and older people and professionals and companies who develop these things about the potential, mm. the ways that they can be used that can be less than helpful. Yeah. You know, developing a kind of literacy about mm. them, what mm. is good, what is bad, rather than – we can't control it. There's so many apps, you know what I mean? So you could get – Maybe even companies to start buying into, you know, ethical guidelines and so on. But these things pop up all the time. People can, you know, understand these days many people can make apps quite easily. So I don't think we're going to be able to regulate it. But if we teach people abilities to like critically evaluate it, I can imagine going to schools, talking to, to young people about, you know, well, it works like this and, you know, what's good about that and what's mm. bad about it and um, so, yeah. Have you seen this openness starting to happen already in the New Zealand space? Oh. Um, 
truly I'm a bit new to the space, so I don't know how much I've seen of, of really what's happening. I know, you know, a lot of people are kind of thinking about these things, um, but certainly a lot of my colleagues are still feeling like they're new to it, I yeah, think, and, yeah. and all of us are sort of finding our feet and thinking, yeah. how do we rethink about mental yeah. health and yeah. psychotherapy and things like that in this changed context? Yeah. So let's say I am a startup in this space of, you know, medical mm. technology and I want to build an app or I want to build something yeah. that helps people manage their day-to-day yeah. um, anxiety. Um, how would you advise me to approach, for example, somebody such as yourself to kind of, and at what time, to kind of start a process to understand this topic deeper yeah. before actually building something? Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose they could be consulting with psychologists. I mean, mm. that would probably be quite useful, you know, particularly in looking at, yeah, the unintended consequences of things. Yeah. Um, because a lot, you know, it's a little bit like pop psychology. It looks really easy. And you think, <laughs> oh, anyone could do it. But actually, you know, you have to understand a little bit about psychology to understand some of the intricacies, some of the potential problems. And I think the other side is actually to treat the users as, as kind of as a source of information as well. Make sure you do proper, you know, kind of studies that actually mm. look not just at like, did this, you know, did, were you able to monitor your mood effectively? Yes, no. You know, did it make you feel better? Yes, no. But how it's being used, how it's being appropriated or misappropriated. Yeah. You know? In all this line of work that you do with, mm. you know, um, which is such a, like, um, heavy charge topic, right? Yeah. Like suicide or deep anxiety or mental distress. When when something doesn't go well and people, mm. you know, just let go, mm. whose responsibility is it? Is it uh, how much of it comes relies on the individual mm. that at the end by using this technology even more takes their own responsibility into their own mm. hands? How much of it is it's a social responsibility? Us as a as a social group around that person has failed them or mm. not. Mm. Um, you know, like where does this space lie? Or mm. maybe it's the, the company that did that app that did not realize how to support that person in the best way, you know, because it, when these things happen, like for example, if, if I'm buying a product and that doesn't, if it promises me something doesn't deliver, it's not a biggie. If it doesn't happen, mm. I go get something mm. else. But when you're dealing with a situation Very that... Very vulnerable people. Yeah. Who, yeah. Yeah, where you're dealing with a situation which the end might be life termination, you know, like um, how do you kind of navigate that situation in terms of responsibility? It's such a good question, but it's such a tough question. I have to say, whose responsibility is it? And I, I do know one of the things that often happens here in New Zealand is we look for the person to blame or mm -hmm. the organization we can say you did it and yes. if you had done it differently you know it wouldn't have happened but I think you know my understanding of say something like suicide is a very complex problem in some sense we all have responsibilities including the person who themselves you know attempts or commits suicide um, but yeah so we've got to take responsibility for the bits that we manage and I, but but there's a, a kind of a I guess so much of this is, I don't know if I can say this properly, but I don't think it's always conscious decision-making that mm. creates the difficulties. It's the way that, say, as a society, we give off a, a kind of an idea that everyone should be happy and that, you know, difficult things can't be spoken about or, you know, we don't have a problem or, 
you know, she'll be right, mate, and all of that stuff. So we're responsible on that level mm. as well as through a particular piece of technology that might open up the possibility for talking about a sensitive subject and, and yeah. create some difficulties. And also the cultural definitions around that subject, right? Because if you treat um, suicide as a kind of a moral failure on the individual, yeah. that, that kind of puts a lot of pressure yeah. um, on the person that is dealing with with anxiety, for example, or that is exactly. because it, it puts a label and a judgment on you. Yeah. And it's, we, especially within the New Zealand culture, and I would say especially with men, yeah. this is a this, a, this is a, um, the very strongly charged topic, right? Yes. How do we as society define somebody that suffers from a specific condition? Yeah. And how do we label them when mm. they acknowledge that they have that condition? Yeah, yeah. No. So, I mean, it's, it's that whole idea, as you say, of moral responsibility. So sometimes it's seen as the individual and sometimes it's mm. seen as the, the health professional yeah. and sometimes yeah. it's seen as the app creator yeah. and, you know, and, and we're quick to point a finger. Mm. I think we, I don't think that's very helpful. I mm. think we need to more understand how collectively we sort of create these possibilities and at the moment, I mean, say, yeah. you know, if you're talking about a forum where somebody talks about suicide and then somebody else, you know, kind of, I don't know, feels like they've been encouraged to do so, you know, these things, I mean, I'd love to be able to stop that, but they have a life of their own. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we aren't always able to control mm. complex social processes. Yeah. And what connection would you say it is, if there isn't, between this moral responsibility and the process of grieving and the process of loss? And, and how do these technologies kind of support people to go through either an, um, expecting a loss or going through a process of loss that mm. comes with this condition naturally? Mm. Grief and loss through the internet. In fact, I wrote a, an article about that quite a long time ago about grieving on the internet or something. Um, but I'm trying to remember what was in it now. Um, I mean, I think it's become, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I think, you know, I mean, it's an emotional space, the, the digital communication, I mean, the internet. It's, it, I guess in, in its initial sort of years, we tend to think of it as an information sharing space, but actually it's hugely weighed down with all sorts of emotional mm. processes, real love, real connection, real hatred, real hurt, and real loss and grief. And it becomes a space in which people can show that, you know, just as they, as they once sort of showed it by delivering flowers and, you know, um, bringing casseroles to your house when you lost somebody, we can now show it through posting on the internet. And, yeah. Um, I was just thinking one of the ways that people have shown that has been through like Facebook pages where yeah. they will have like a page and it will set up as like a memorial for someone that's died mm. and they keep communicating and messaging them and posting pictures of them mm. even though they're dead. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that feels like sort of quite morally ambiguous, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. and, and particularly, you know, who who – who owns this person's life and identity online? Yeah. And, you know, of course, in the first instance, they do. And what about their family? And then, you know, but in a way, we also create sort of public monuments to people and people, you know, there are ways in which, I mean, I guess it's just another way of grieving. I mean, you have to be sensitive to all the different people involved, but I'm not sure that there can be easy rules about it, mm -hmm. actually. I mean, I, I had somebody I knew 
die recently and it was posted on Facebook and I found it immensely kind of helpful and reassuring Mm. to read other people's messages of support and kindness and remembrance and and so on you know so I can see how it would be valuable but I can imagine for a parent who's lost a child and there's a Facebook yeah site you know and might be really upsetting for them and there's also a special form of social blaming right because when you come back to that moral responsibility and something like this happened there are people that are trying to find that Guilty yeah. party, yes. and also talk to those via yeah. that piece of technology, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and you are exposed to both sides, right? To the people that offer encouragement, but also to the people that offer a lot of blame mm. and a lot of judgment mm. um, at the same time. So, like, yeah, it's, all things it's good and bad. <laughs> I feel I feel like that's what a lot of the space is about. I mean, it's obviously very different to what the arenas that I've worked in before. It's a very different kind of culture that hop, happens online, but some of the things are just like life. You know, yes. There's good and there's bad. <laughs> Do you think that makes it easier for, for example, um, a specialist in your line of work that yeah. does not have a lot of experience with technology but to kind of start getting it? Yes. Uh, it makes it easier. It makes it easier to understand and work with technology. Like trying, uh, reaching the conclusion that it's just another, uh, just another form of human social expression. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't fundamentally change the, how we are. It yes. just offers us another outlet of yes. engagement. I, I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I think. Yes, mm-hmm. that's what I think. That, you know, I mean, obviously there's some, you know, some things we have to understand better and learn about if you're a newcomer to this. Um, but yeah, to just see it as um, a kind of, a place that people communicate mm-hmm. and with all its potentials for harm and, and for good. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, you would say that it doesn't need a governance? I guess one of the things that happens when something new develops, people get very anxious about it and mm. its potentials. And particularly as this newness have developed has developed for young people ahead of older people. And so as older people, professionals, whatever we are, researchers, we feel out of our depth. We feel frightened. And so we want to set up quick rules that govern how, how it's going to operate. Um, and for me, I guess it's, it's not about rulemaking so much as understanding, which is to, not to say that we shouldn't be, you know, have very strong rules and, and consequences for people, you know, who engage in abuse online or, mm. you know, kind of, yeah, that sort of thing. But I guess there is a, a sort of a balance between, you know, governing normal sort of acceptable behavior um, but also recognizing, well, things might be a little freer and different here. I mean, I always remember, uh, like, when I was younger and I used to sit and talk to my friends on the phone when I was, like, 13, 14. And my father used to come in and he used to say, why are you talking on the phone? That's not, like, real talk. Go out and see people. (laughs) And, of course, for me it was real (laughs) talk. And I always think of that when I think of, you know, the way that adults will say, well, they're not communicating properly or, you know, they've lost Mm. touch with people. And I think actually they are. I was then. That was real communication for me. And I think they really are communicating. And, yeah, so to kind of just understand it's a different space Mm. for social communication. Where would you see your interest, interest taking you in that space in the future? Well... Oh, what do I want to do in the future? I'm just 
doing this new project with Susanna, hopefully. <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of, I would like to see, I mean, I'm working at the moment on trying to understand what young people are doing to support each other online and how that's working or not working. So I'm quite interested in, in that whole area because my idea is that while it's tricky to have adults sort of go in and colonize the spaces that young people are operating in, um, there may be things we can learn about how support works mm. that would be helpful in other contexts and in other communications with young people. And people have done some of these slightly moderated um, forums and so on where there's an adult or a professional somewhere in the background, you know, kind of helping out a little yeah. bit. Um, but, yeah, so I'm kind of looking at – I'm. I guess I'm less interested in designing apps or um, or designing computer games to manage mental health problems and more interested in what kind of naturally occurring, if you can call it that, social processes are mm. happening yeah. already that are good and that we can develop and build on if we want to make people more resilient yeah. and so on. Which would be the awesome way that a developer would should be thinking yeah. as well, yeah. right? Because okay. this is such yeah. a, like you... As you said earlier, the um, I think technology, the internet is just a, a, a space for the same game to be played again and again, yeah, the yeah. same social game between people. But I think what it, what it makes it, I had a professor once in anthropology that told me the beautiful thing about a new thing is that it puts a frame into a reality that you, has become invisible ah, with the yes. process of knowing something. Yes, so yes. when something is new, yeah. it makes you look at something that was yeah. already there with a different eye. Yeah. So I, when you were talking about sociality and how young people engage with each other and what's the relationship of the parents yeah. with that, that, that is a conundrum that has been forever, right? Yeah, like as, sure. as, as young people develop their identity and their sense of self, that is, yeah. that is kind of yeah. separated from the parents' yeah. sense of self. Yeah. How do they find those spaces where they can do that with people yeah. like them and, and still kind of connect to the parents exactly. in, you know? Exactly. So it's the same challenge. It's just that with the internet, it just, it just makes it so visible. And makes you know? us revisit it. Yes. Makes yeah, but us, maybe yeah. we can achieve new understanding when yeah. we revisit it because mm -hmm. we kind of look at it yes. a little bit, you know, like yeah. being exactly. kind of looking at an exotic culture, someone exactly. different, you mm -hmm. know, and so we come at it with different eyes and kind of see it slightly It's not normal for you. Yeah. So then yeah. you're understanding yeah. it better. You're looking at it more intensely. Yeah. No. And, you know, yeah. you sort of ask questions like, how come you say that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas, before, you know, in, in yeah, if, if it was just part of the, and I, would, I was used to. I would say with the parents, it also comes with maybe a sense of more humbleness yes. because it's a space that they don't control. So yes. that lets them become more vulnerable in front of the kids. Yeah. Instead of assuming I'm from that yeah. position of authority and responsibility at the same time, which kind of sometimes blocks that communication. Yes. yes. Do you know the um, yes. Facebook is this grand equalizer somehow yes. because the child can teach the parents some stuff that yes. they don't know. So, yes, you know? yes. So it's a wonderful equalizer in a way. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, as you say, for, you know, forever, well, in sort of modern westernized societies, young people have been sort of hiding their activities yes. from their parents. yes. And now they're just hiding them sort of online. And, of course, we can also overstate these things. You know, many young people will want to talk to their parents and, you know, still keep that channel open. So it's not all the time, everybody. 
Okay, so um, we would really like to keep this going, but unfortunately, I think we have run out of time here. So I'm just going to say to our listeners that we will put any links to Mm -hmm. work that you would like to share on our podcast so you guys can check out what she's been doing and have a read and stuff. And yeah, really get into it. So thank you for coming here. And um, I think we've really enjoyed it. Mm, My pleasure. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.